Getting In is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word products. Just for being a Getting In listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice by going to www.audible.com slash college. From Slate and Panoply, this is Getting In, a podcast series about the path to college. I'm Julie Lifcott-Hames. Today, we'll get an update from one of our Getting In seniors, and we'll be answering more of your great listener questions. And I'm super excited that also today, I've got Getting In's expert, Amy Young, here with me in the studio in Manhattan. Amy's the director of college counseling at Avenues, an independent school in New York City. So great to see you, Amy, literally to see you in person. Thank you for being here. I think it was September since the last time we were in the same room. So this is wonderful. Welcome to New York. Thank you, Amy. Thanks for being back on the podcast. And thanks for being such a great host whenever I'm out. Oh, a pleasure. So yeah, you and your colleague, Tim Hudson, guest hosted the show a few weeks ago, right after our seniors got their notification letters from colleges. You and Tim shared some great advice for students in the final stage of the decision-making process. I'm wondering, what was this May 1st deadline like for the seniors you advise? Well, we had a lot of students who had gone through that early process and had either committed to schools in the early process or they had had a lot of time to really digest schools they had been admitted to in early. And then come April 1st, we all came back from spring break with lots of wonderful news from the students. So they've spent their April revisiting, doing a lot of due diligence, asking a lot of questions. Literally revisiting. Literally going revisiting, going back to yeah. places. And so in some cases, visiting campuses for the first time. Uh, In some cases, booking visits to campus that last weekend before Mm. they had to Mm. submit their deposits on Sunday, May 1st, uh, and sometimes Monday, May 2nd. Um, (laughs) And we did did have an 11th hour switch, which was pretty exciting. Um, Someone had deposited and then changed their mind literally, I think, at 1130 the (laughs) the night before it was due. So, um, Can you say more about that? Sure. You know, this was a student who had some really interesting options that were very very, very different from each other. It was in many ways choosing between apples and oranges. And I think that in some ways was even harder than saying, you know, do I want to go to this small liberal arts school or that small liberal arts school? She had an opportunity abroad versus an opportunity in New York versus a few other opportunities. And um, some of them were very highly specific academic programs. And she sort of fell onto one and then sent an email uh, to actually to Tim and said, wow, I just submitted this deposit, but I'm spending my evening looking at the website of the other school I turned mm, down. Mm. and Such a sign. Such, such a, a sign. sign from the self mm-hmm. beckoning. Pay attention to me. That's mm-hmm. not what I want. What I want is this. Very it's a clue so. from the body and from the gut. You know? Wow. Yeah. I know you're not telling us any of the names of the schools, probably on purpose. Our listeners are dying to know. <laughs> but, you know... Um, What's your sense? Right decision? I think she absolutely made the right decision. I think it was it was a tough decision, and I think she kind of flipped a coin because she couldn't make it. And then once she actually made that decision, then the path became it was clear. Yeah. You know what? I actually tell people. I'm loving that you mentioned flip a coin because sometimes when students seem to be torn down the middle, I say, flip a coin. Decide heads is this school, tails is that school. You're not going to actually let the coin make your decision. Don't worry. You flip the coin, you see the results, and you pay attention to how you feel in response to that decision. If you're excited, oh, yay, heads. Or if you're, oh, dang, I wish it was tails. That tells you, tails, go to that school. That's the one you want. I mean, it sounds simplistic. And how can you possibly base a four-year decision on something so trivial? But what you're actually trying to discern is... 
Where do I feel like I can be myself? Which place is going to embrace me? Where am I going to have the opportunities and experiences that I want to have? Where am I going to feel the way I want to feel? So tapping into the feels of it is actually, I think, really quite rational. Absolutely. And hard to do when you're making pro and con lists, right? Hard to really tease out what your instincts are. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the lists we make full of information, big, medium, small, east, west, public, private. Do they have athletics? Do they not? You know, all of those lists just begin to inform us about what that college experience might be like. We've really got to sit with ourselves in light of all that information and ask these more esoteric questions. Okay, so great to hear about that one student's wrestle with a couple of options right at the 11th hour. Listeners, if you're wondering, next week we'll be getting full updates from several of our getting in seniors. However, one of them, Amy's advisee at Avenue's Ellis Wells, can't join our senior roundtable, so we're going to try to listen to him today. As listeners may remember, Ellis got into Vanderbilt earlier this winter, so he's been trying to make the most of spring. For the most part, I've been trying to get out. Uh, I have some free time in the afternoons, which is nice. Not so much homework or what I was doing six months ago, which was written Common App and Supplements. So I'm kind of taking advantage of that. The good weather, I'm going out to Westchester, playing golf at least once a week, sometimes just going to practice until 9.30, 10 o'clock, which is just fun for me. It's enjoyable. Going out for dinner with friends, just enjoying like the city and everything that I can do here for these last couple last couple weeks. Andy had this advice for juniors starting the process. Get organized early. Definitely for me, one thing that was so helpful was I didn't have to worry about common app essay because I worked over to the summer. So getting that organized and done pretty much before uh, even the school year, was a great relief and then making sure you you know plan out your time time management because those those deadlines for um ed supplements things like that come up really quickly so just getting organized in that sense be excited it's great fun because now looking back on it you know i kept trying to say this to myself six months ago but i laughed thinking about how stressed out i was about you know each little word in a common app essay when really that in retrospect that's nothing to freak out about enjoy senior year because you can only have it once and I'm kind of bummed that it's coming to an end. It's scary but also exciting moment that I'll be moving on to another portion of my life. Amy, knowing Ellis as well as you do and as close as you are, it must be so nice for you to hear how relaxed and confident he sounds as the school year winds down and he looks forward to fall at Vanderbilt. What changes, if any, have you noticed in him over this school year? You know, I I think it's interesting that he mentions how uh, anxious he was literally over yeah. every word of his essay yeah. in the fall yeah. um, because he was. was he? And, you know, but he's not unusual in that sense. Yeah. And there's definitely, you know, you, you notice and I'm. I'm stealing this from a faculty member at my school who said this, but you notice these kids, once they get into college, they sort of stand a little taller. They just, there's there's a moment for them where they realize they've crossed this this huge benchmark in their life. And it's yeah. this moment of maturity and this moment into adulthood. And I, I think the standing a little taller um, also comes with moving a little bit more slowly and being in the present because they're not, they're not wondering, what is this? Where am I going? You know, Ellis just knew as of February that he was going to be going to Vanderbilt. And so that let him slow down a lot, and it let him live in the moment and the present. Yeah, but slow down, often people, uh, 
I know you don't mean uh, slack off by slow down. You mean relax into a healthier rhythm. Feel like he can sit and have conversations with his friends that yeah. are meaningful and about the moment. Um, yes, no, not slack yeah. off. It's much more of a, a being in the present and being able to see what you're doing and, and enjoying it for its for its own sake. Which is how childhood should be, which speaks to how problematic this entire system is, that once kids have run that rat race, as Alice did so beautifully, they can finally be themselves again. I mean, any admissions folks listening, I don't know if any of them are listening to our podcast as fervently as parents and kids are, but wow, guys, we have a really problematic system on our hands. It sucks the life out of kids, and I hope the adults who run the whole show are going to figure out how to bring a little bit more sanity back to the process so that we don't have this marked change like, okay, finally, I'm done. I'm done. I can finally learn for learning's sake. The number of times I hear that around the country as I speak to kids in high schools on my book tour, you know, it saddens me. I can finally learn for learning's sake. What have you been doing all along? Oh, I've been taking all the classes I had to to get into the right college. Wow. This is what we've done. And you know, obviously, as a college counselor at a great school, you know, you know what it's like. It's very, it's very true. It's very true. And I think they are able to sort of savor things in a different way now that they've they've reached the end of it. Yeah. Savor. I love that word. You know, when I was out on that crazy college tour with my own son, I had this moment of watching him go from being a hamster in a wheel, a junior and a high school trying to think about college applications and testing and grades and APs and stuff. I watched him segue from being that hamster in that wheel in Palo Alto as he emerged from a class uh, at Reed. We were visiting Reed College in Portland, Oregon. Great smaller school. My alma mater. Oh, I didn't realize yeah, I that. I did. I, oh, I hope he had a wonderful so visit. Awesome. <laughs> he had an amazing visit. And, and here's one of the reasons why. He sat in on two classes, spent a full day there. Sat in on two classes at the tail end of the day, and I was waiting for him in the car that we were, you know, we're taking a lift back to the airport. And so I was waiting for him to emerge from this second class. And, you know, I see him in the rearview mirror, and he's coming, huffing and puffing, bringing his luggage. And he climbs into the car, and he sits down, and I'm just so eager to know how this time in classes went. So I said, how was it? And he said, oh, it was excruciating. And my heart sank for a moment. And he looked me in the eye and he said, it was excruciating because there were five students in that class and the professor was asking them a question and they weren't really quite getting at it. They weren't really getting at the answer, but I knew the answer. And I wasn't supposed to say anything because the piece of paper they handed us said, you can sit in on a class, but don't participate. He said, mom, it was excruciating not to be able to say what I knew and contribute to that conversation. And inside I thought, Yes, that's it, kid. That's what college is for someone like you who's intellectually curious about biology. You're sitting in a biology class. You hungered to participate. My son in that moment got to feel what it would be like to be a college student engaged around topics that are fascinating and interesting, you know, to feel that whatever shyness you might have about participating overcome by the desire to contribute. Reed showed my kid that. And in that moment, I think for the first time, he saw that college isn't just some a bigger wheel to spin in, you know, to run breathlessly around, but uh, to savor, mm -hmm. to use your beautiful term, to savor. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. All right, Amy, time for our wonderful listener questions. We got this letter from a mom in the Pacific Northwest, which is, of course, the region we were just speaking of when we were talking about Reed College. Thank you so much for this podcast. I have learned so much and can relate as I have a high school senior. 
our son has confirmed his acceptance at the University of Puget Sound in Tacoma, Washington. He was awarded $8,000 in merit money in his acceptance letter. I found out yesterday from an independent college counselor that the average minimum University of Puget Sound gives is $16,000 in merit money. Is it too late to ask for more money now that he has put his deposit down? He will be playing a sport for Puget Sound, but it is D3, so no athletic money was given. Wow, so great to hear somebody talking about University of Puget Sound. It's one of those colleges that change lives we like to talk about. Amy, what do you think? What's your advice for this mom? I'm thrilled that that your son's going to be going to University of Puget Sound. Uh, it's absolutely beautiful. Um, in terms of the merit money question, you know, I'm not average minimum. I don't. This is all sounding sort of a little weird to me. Um, there may be something published out there in some sort of guide about average merit awards and things like that. But I'm a little dubious about this this message from an independent counselor. Um, you know, merit money is usually given for reasons, just like uh, need-based aid is usually given for reasons. Now, you're you're welcome to, to call up Puget Sound and see if they have more money available. Usually, if you are trying to get a merit aid award increase, they would probably want to see that you have received more money from another institution. Um, so they'll compete with that institution in that sense for you by giving you more dollars, but they want to see that someone else is offering you more dollars. They may, okay. right? They may. I mean, it's, and and I don't want to encourage people from, I don't want to discourage people from trying to maximize, you know, their ability to afford college for their students and things like that. I'm just, I have to say, the, I, this is a just a weird statement coming from an independent counselor. I'm not sure where this counselor is getting their information. And maybe this counselor has worked with three students from Puget Sound and okay. has since co- come up with this number. Okay. So, you know, I don't know. I would I would be a little bit dubious of it, um, but you're certainly welcome to make the phone call. Okay, thanks for that. Our next voicemail is about the SAT versus the ACT, a topic we've covered on previous episodes, but this one's a little different. So I'd love to know what you think, Amy. Here's the question from a grandmother in New Jersey. Hello, my name is Maureen, and I'm from Moorestown, New Jersey. My daughter and I are trying to decide whether my granddaughter should take the new SAT or the ACT. She is a straight-A student who's in 10th grade, and she will graduate in 2018. We were leaning toward the ACT until we got the results on the new PSAT. Her scores put her in the 96th percentile. And although there are plenty of study materials out there for the ACT, and it is a known commodity, we are wondering whether we should encourage her to prepare for and take the new SAT, since she had such strong scores on the new PSAT. We really don't know which path to advise her to take, because we're also well aware that the new SAT is an unknown commodity, for which there are no study materials. She's going to start preparing for whichever test she chooses in the near future, so any light you might be able to shed on this dilemma will be so appreciated. We love listening to your wonderfully informative podcast, and I've told all my friends about it. Thank you for your help. What does she do? She did really well on the PSAT. Does that mean she's going to do really well on the SAT and not well on the ACT? How does a family make this decision, Amy? Right now, I mean, in the past, we probably would have had some metrics to predict that. With the redesigned SAT, we don't. Um, One thing that I will encourage Maureen to pay less attention to is the percentile um, in terms of the 96th percentile that she mentions. What colleges colleges are going to look at will be raw scores. Mm -hmm. So I think probably the... 
the best way to sort of parse these two different tests right now would actually be for her daughter to take a practice SAT if there is one available online. Um, I'm actually not sure if the new SAT is available online. There are places that have put together some some practice versions of that and see what that raw score is. There are plenty of uh, practice ACTs available online, available in books, um, and then look at that raw score. So um, if it's too difficult to hunt down a practice redesigned SAT, I would say find a practice ACT, figure out what your daughter's raw score is, and then you can go online and find all of these concordance tables. So a score on the SAT is equal to this score on the ACT. And if you Google SAT, ACT concordance tables, you'll get lots of information to compare the two scores. Okay, let's slow this down. Sure. SAT, ACT, concordance table. Mm -hmm. This is a way for a person to figure out, am I effectively better at the ACT or better at the SAT? Because you can find an equi- a concordance table, mm-hmm. which is going to basically show the equivalence, right? You get to, okay. Right. Got it. So okay. a 29 on the ACT is equal to this range of scores on the SAT. Okay. What you don't want to do is compare percentile to percentile because a 95th percentile on the SAT, the raw score of that yeah. is not necessarily equal to the raw score 95th percentile on the ACT. But isn't it impressive if you're in the 95th percentile or the 96th as Maureen's granddaughter is? Isn't uh, Help us understand why that isn't in and of itself, you know, something to kind of be... Uh, relying upon. Going into my memory bank here, and I'm thinking of scores I've worked with with students on the SAT, but it's the old SAT, and they're they're no doubt going to be sort of recentering these scores and changing the percentiles. So my my information is going to be out of date. But a 96 percentile, you know, if I start thinking about that, you know, that's probably sort of maybe if you look at just the math and the verbal, maybe around a 1450. Don't quote me. I, yeah. I don't have my, my computer sure. in front okay. of me. But for some schools, there could be a big difference between a 1450 and getting a 35 on the ACT. Okay. Um, so there there are ranges within those scores. Okay. Um, and there is, you know, if you think about a good sort of rule of thumb for the previous SAT was sort of 90th percentile was more or less, I'm fudging a little bit here, but sort of a 650 on the verbal, 650 on the math, so about a 1300. Um, So that's 90th percentile. There's a lot of room above that. Okay. Now I want to break something else down because I think many of us are still really confused about these two different standardized tests. Sure. So give us your rule of thumb. When you're meeting with a kid, you're meeting with a family, and you're trying to explain what the SAT seeks to measure versus what the ACT seeks to measure, what are those differences, and why might a kid lean toward one as the way to put their best foot forward versus the other? So we, ha- we had some language for that in previous years, which I'm happy to share. And I think it was less about what does the ACT measure than thinking about how does the format of the test play to one student's particular strengths versus another student. So what do you mean? And there used to be a lot of differences. So it used to be that the SAT had a guessing penalty. So if you weren't, if you didn't have really good instincts of whether or not you knew the answer to that question or not, and the idea of 
being penalized for guessing on an answer caused you anxiety. And there were some students where that was a significant factor in their score. We would say, you know what, why don't you move over to ACT? There isn't a guessing penalty. If you don't know, you can just guess and move on. Um, and that just made things easier for them. The ACT is a much faster test. The pacing um, is much faster. So you get less time per question on the ACT. So for students who genuinely read a little bit slower or might even uh, English might not be their first language. Sometimes the SAT just gave them that little bit extra time to sort of go through the questions. Um, And then I think, you know, we used to stereotype or overgeneralize and say the math and science kids usually gravitated toward ACT because there was a a data analysis section that was called the science section, still is called the science section. Uh, SAT did not have that. So we usually send the more verbal humanities kids in that direction. At this point, the format and content of the tests have converged so much so that we're, we are thinking that will no longer be the case. But, uh, we are still figuring out this new redesigned okay. SAT. All right. Well, the SAT redesigned itself in part to look more like the ACT because right. it was losing some market share there. So we're in this unknown zone. New SAT, not a lot of study materials out there yet, but your advice remains, take a practice test if you can get your hands on one and then assess how you're doing at a raw score level mm-hmm. on one test versus another. And that will help you see you know, which one to ultimately take. And send to colleges. And I do think at this point, because the tests are so similar in terms of their content and format, if you pick one and you're prepping for it, that prep is going to pay dividends for the other test as well. So I I think it's much less of an either or at this point. That's good. That's so good to hear because I think part of what's hard about this process for families and kids is there's so many variables, so many damn variables. I was going to not say damn, but then I realized we're on a podcast and we can say whatever the heck we want. Okay, watch out, listeners. <laughs> Julie's unleashed. I'm in Manhattan and I'm saying whatever I feel like. No. Okay. All right. Thanks for that, Amy. Um, we have one more piece of listener mail. It's a comment from a mom in Texas. Hi, I'm Charlene from Houston, Texas, and I've been listening to your podcast for about six months now. And I thoroughly enjoy everything that I've learned. I have a set of twins that are juniors this year. One has a better idea of what and where they want to go than what school they want to go to. But your podcast is definitely giving me information to guide them both. I particularly like your special on HBCUs and the discussion you had about the relationships alumni have with the colleges and amongst themselves. I also wanted to add that there's also significant engagement among the alumni from various HBCUs. I'm a graduate from Texas Southern University College of Pharmacy, but I also have developed relationships from graduates of pharmacy schools at Xavier University, as well as Howard University. These relationships have been beneficial both professionally as well as personally. Thank you for all that you do, and keep up the good work. Charlene, thank you for that voicemail and for pointing out that the HBCU experience and network extends far beyond the specific school one attends. I'm not surprised to hear that. You know, I think I mentioned on that HBCU episode that according to the Alumni Factor, which is an interesting uh, list of rankings of colleges looking at alumni outcomes, the HBCUs 
rank highest when it comes to um, the the degree of personal relationships uh, experienced on that campus, that sort of connection to one another. The two types of schools that ranked the highest, according to the Alumni Factors measure, were HBCUs and the various U.S. military academies, as essentially having that bonding experience where you just feel an incredible sense of cohort and tightness to one another, even more so than the Ivies and the better known brand name schools where often people think that, you know, they're the best at fomenting that. No, actually, it's HBCUs and the military academies where that is most likely to happen. So really great to hear that that firsthand uh, perspective from Charlene in Houston. Thank you, Charlene. Any thoughts on that, Amy? Any, I don't know if you've had experience sending kids to HBCUs or hearing about that experience. Sure. We have a student in our first graduating class who's going to be going to Howard. Fantastic. Um, and we're very excited for him. And we have students in our in our junior class who are actively going out and visiting HBCUs. And I think for them, in, in terms of the parallel between the military academies, those kids are looking for a very particular experience. Yeah. So their college search, at least the students I've worked with, is 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 driven by a desire to have a very particular experience in college that they can articulate yeah. that they are seeking out um, and I think that's true for the military academies as well and I and and that can profoundly shape your experience on a campus and with the alumni afterwards. Yeah. All right, Amy, thank you so much for being here today. Really really appreciate it. It's great to see you. You too. Listeners, send us your voice memos and emails to our email address gettingin@slate.com. And if you can, leave a voicemail on our hotline. That number is 929-999-4353. You can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at gettinginpod. That's all one word, gettinginpod. Getting In is a production of Slate and Panoply Media. Michelle Siegel is our producer. Our executive producer is Laura Mayer. And Panoply's chief content officer is Andy Bowers. Special thanks this week to Kristen Meinzer, who helped produce the segment along with Michelle Siegel. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Julie Lifcott Haynes. And do remember, it's not just about getting in someplace. It's about finding the right fit. Getting In is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible has more than 180,000 audiobooks. You can download them and access them on a bunch of different devices, on iPhones, Android, Kindle, or pretty much any other MP3 player. One book you could try out from Audible is The Genius of Birds by Jennifer Ackerman. Birds are astonishingly intelligent creatures, and Ackerman explains how revolutionary new research is showing that some birds rival primates and even humans in their remarkable forms of intelligence. If you want to listen to The Genius of Birds or many other books, Audible has it. Get a free audiobook and 30-day trial today by signing up at www.audible.com slash college. That's A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash college.